say, a privilege and a real honor to stand before kings and queens. Quoting from Revelation chapter 1, once you are a child of God, you are a king, you're a queen, um, you're a priest in the eyes of God. I want us to please open with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, I read verse 41. Luke 10, verse 41. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Matter, matter, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Verse 42, but one thing is needful, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I believe you remember the story, Christ went to visit Mary and Martha at their home. They were very happy to have him in their midst. But the expression of that joy was different. Martha was concerned about how to spend time for Christ in service. But Mary was concerned about how to spend time with Christ at his feet. We might have a perception of how we feel we are better or best at serving the Lord. But sometimes, even though service generally is good, leaving out the more important aspects, leaving out the good part, may not be the best way to show our love to God. Mary sat at his feet, listening to his words. She was enraptured by his presence. She forgot all her cares forgot all her concerns. She was at perfect peace with the Prince of Peace. Imagine if we turned the table around and it was now Mary in that state, conversing, speaking to Christ. The title for today's message is Abba, Father, the Cry of a Child. My text is from Luke 11. I'll begin to read from verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Prayer is a very important aspect and is a way we express our love to God. Prayer is a highest form of worship that comes from a place of love 
You see, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, or Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when the king in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar by name, made a declaration that do not pray in the heart of Daniel, he was saying, I cannot but worship my God. He understood at that point, refusal to pray was tantamount to denying the God that made him. And Daniel, having esteemed, having loved his God, felt his life was nothing compared to the love that God showed to him. As we read this very familiar verse, I must confess, I came towards this verse with a degree of confidence. I left more humbled than I came. Familiarity, it says, breeds contempt. And I pray as we open and read the verses, we will have an open heart to what God has to say to us as a church, as an individual, as a family, but most importantly, as an individual. Prayer can be defined in many ways, but I'll put it to you this way. Prayer is a loving obedience that summons your entire being. Your being consists of your mind, your intellect, isn't it? Your reasoning. Your being consists of your heart, where you will and decide on things that matter. Your will, your, your, your being consists of even your soul, the bedrock the, of your emotions, and obviously, your being consists of what we see, your strength. The only place that your entire being <coughs> is commanded is in the place of prayer. The Bible says in Mark 12, verse 20, verse 30, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And when we move to the place of prayer, and our eyes are closed, and we begin to realize our mind is drifting to the meal unprepared, to the task at work that has not been completed, we know we are not engaging in a loving obedience. True praise. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he seized, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, Teach us to pray. As an overview, as we look at this verse, the first, the second, the third, and the fourth verse, they divide naturally into two. We see the devotion in one and two, largely in verse two. But in three and four, we see dependence. But at the same time as you explore that even more, devotion is to God, almost like a vertical plane. And dependence is almost horizontal access, which makes us what? The cross. 
as we look more and more into the spray of Christ as a pattern, as a guide, we see the cross. And beyond that, beyond the cross, we also see a community. If you read the entire four verses, it says, when, when you pray, but if you read, let's start from verse, um, let's read verse one again. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of the disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, when ye pray. But when you read verse four, it says, and forgive us our sins. And if you read continuously, you realize that the use of you as an individual and the use of our, I'll come to that even more as we move along. But let's look at what happened in verse 1. Christ was praying. His disciples saw him praying. Perhaps we're listening in on his prayer. But what was it that captured their attention? That they just stood there and watched him praying? What was it that made them so consumed by what he was doing? And they asked the question, Lord, teach us to pray. This was something more than a mere religious exercise. This is something more than a ritual that we are meant to observe on a regular basis. They saw a relationship, something real. Imagine you see a man that is 70 plus years old on the phone to his wife of the wife almost 40 years. And you see them laughing and giggling and sharing deep words, you can tell from their words, that this couple are in love. There was something authentic, something genuine about what Christ was doing that was so magnetic that the disciples said, look here, teach us to pray. They asked the question, why Christ, this man was possessed, we could not cast out a demon, why couldn't we cast out the demon? They were concerned about that. But this one, they didn't say, Christ, teach us how to cast out demons. They said, God, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. As parents, we have children watching us. They see us read, and a young kid will come next to with a book in his hand and sit next to you pretending to be reading. They see us cook. They come next to us and pretend to be cooking. They see us cross our legs. They come next to us, pretend, and they cross their legs. Do they see us pray? Do they see us pray? Do they see us spend enough quality time in the place of prayer to a point whereby they will say to us, Daddy, Mommy, 
uncle, auntie, grandparents, what are you doing there? You sat there, you knelt down, you sat down for half an hour. You're not insane, I'm sure of that. What are you doing there? I saw you talking. I was eavesdropping. There's something real about what you're saying. You see, the reality is this. We can read all the commentaries on the Bible. You can listen to all the messages ever preached by great men of God. You can read every book you desire on praying. Those are great things. You can even read your Bible. And only few will be privileged or asked to speak in gatherings. Again, I'm humbled to be here. But everyone, everyone must pray. Everyone must pray. You don't learn to pray by just expecting that it will just happen. No, it summons your entire being. The one that made the heavens and the earth would not be satisfied if you're speaking to him and your mind is not there. Your heart is not there. Your body is not there. It's winter now. So historically, prayer might decrease in winter and summer. There's a lot I want to bring out from this session. I'm not sure I have the luxury of time. The Christian culture in Christ is different from the culture in the world. Our culture. Our culture dictates that we desire independence. But the church culture from Christ demand that we are dependent on God. As you approach these verses, I'm going to read to us and talk us through it. Understand that as you approach the place of prayer, your ultimate desire is devotion, but also to depend on God, regardless of what you have, regardless of what you know, regardless of what you've achieved. And that's difficult. That's difficult because we would rather be independent. Every parent wants his child to be independent of them. That's our desire for God, for our children growing up. For anyone you know, 
in the faith, spiritually, physically. You want them to become independent of you. But God says, no. I want you to depend on me. And that's tough. I want to look at verse 2. And he said unto them, when you pray. That's personal, isn't it? When you pray, because you must pray. You must pray. There is a time to pray. It's great we come for the morning service for communion at 9.45 a.m. It's great we come on Wednesday. It's fantastic we come here on Sunday, <clears throat> half past five. But God is saying to us here, Christ is saying to us here, that you must pray. We could debate about how often you pray. Luke 18 verse 1 says, and he speak a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. But that's not the point. We'll get there later on. Let's forget the quantity focused on the quality. You know, when you're in love, the time just runs. Jacob said, seven years was like, what, seven days? Let's forget the quantity of time, the duration in prayer. Let's focus more on that relationship. When you pray, say, not my father, Is a community, isn't it? Our Father. That's the basis. That's the right of access. It's not because of your works, not because of your achievement. It's because of sonship, daughtership. You've been adopted into the family of God because there was a day, there was a time you realized that you were a sinner, that the works of righteousness you've done cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. The fact you were born in a Christian home cannot save you. You realize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You realize that Christ died on the cross, he endured the shame and the pain and the beating for you. You realized and you got saved and you are now no more a stranger. But what a fellow citizen in Israel, Israel spiritual, you're born again. It's amazing that the Jews were upset that Christ referred to Christ, to God, as his father. But then, just for all this what? You didn't say our mother. You said our father. I'll leave it there. Our father who art in heaven. He could have said 
He was the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the one that made the whole world. He could have said that. He didn't say that. The Jews from history saw God differently. What they've been told over time was that God was a God that comes in lightnings and thunders. And that was scary. That was somewhat, not repulsive, but it's put a distance between you and the creator. But at this point, Christ was saying, he is our father. And that meant a lot, I would explain. God has many titles. But each of his titles will put a gulf between you and him. But if you imagined yourself to be the son of a king, everyone else will see the king and his title, his glory, will put a gulf of distance between the subjects and the supreme one. But when the child of that king looks at those titles, he remembers, he looks at them through the lens of the fact that this man is my father. And that draws him closer. You could imagine that if your father is a, um, a CEO or a boss in a company, or a commander of the armed forces of a nation. Everyone that knows your dad in the workplace dreads him because he's a commander. And they dare not jump and hug him. They wouldn't dare that. But even though you know he's a commander of the armed forces, when you see your father, you just jump on him and say, look here, daddy, how are you doing? And you're like, wow, that boy is bold. That is what Christ was communicating. You have access. No more need, no need for a priest. No need to go through an intermediary. You have what? Access. Hallow be thy name. That's, that's a bit um, tough, I'll explain. Hallowed be thy name. To hallow means to set apart, to lift up, to adore, to admire, to elevate, to praise in different ways. But how does that relate to me and you in the place of prayer? Which is more important? How does hallowing the name of God relate to me and you in the place of prayer? That's probably more important. The easiest way I feel we could explain that is to go to Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, 
for this is right. Verse 2. Honor <coughs> thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. In a way, in a sense, this first two verses I've read to us in Luke 11 is a compression of the first four commandments. It summarizes what we do in our lives and the place of prayer when it comes to the first four commandments. And I'll explain as we move along. Hallow be thy name. Ephesians 6 that I read to us talks about honoring God. Sorry, honoring our parents. And the easiest way to explain the context of family is to use the word honor, because we can relate with that word. It simply contains two key things. Obedience with a positive attitude. Obedience with a positive attitude. That the emphasis. And when we say we hallow the name of God, when we say we lift up, we honor God, we honor his name, it means to us as Christians, as those who have given our life to Christ, that in everything we do, we exalt his name. Not by saying it out, it's by living it out. Prayer. You prepare for prayer before you start to pray. The life you live, the life you lead, prepares you for prayer. You can't say to your parents, I love my dad, I respect my dad, and before you came to your dad's presence, you've slandered his name. Your attitude wasn't positive, even though you obeyed your dad. Your friends can see that this young man has obeyed his dad, but he's done it grudgingly. That is not honoring your parents. And if we are children of God and we really want to hallow God, want to honor his name, the life we lead, the life we live would show. Let me back pace a little bit. We like to run commentaries on the weather. Don't we? Yes, we do. It's too cold. It's too windy. It's too hot. Oh, what's the temperature? 25 degrees, serious. But sometimes you get too critical. It's nice to be realistic. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes you go just over the edge and become very critical. Very critical. Sometimes you get annoyed. Sometimes you throw a fit and a tantrum when the weather doesn't submit to our will. But do you know there's a planet called Jupiter that your father, my father, created and is constantly stormy? 
I'm sure it's worse than what we have here. Do you know there's a planet called Venus? That's your father, my father, our father, created and is about 400 degrees Celsius. So do you think whatever has happened on Earth was a mistake? When we hallow his name, I will meet a colleague. I will begin to talk about the weather. And he or she is just slandering Mother Nature. What's going on here? This is boiling hot. This is very cold. What's, this is rubbish. You know that this is this young man ridiculing the work of my father. What you say would reflect that this weather is under the control of your father. You be realistic, but not rude as you comment on the things that relate to your father. Hallowed be thy name. You see, prayer doesn't just start when you begin to pray. We don't hallow his name when we start to go on our knees on Wednesdays, on Sunday afternoon, or 9.45 a.m. On, on, on Sunday. No, we hallow his name in everything we do. The life we lead, we hallow his name in everything that we do. Hallowed be thy name. What in the name? You have to understand the process of naming and its symbolisms. We haven't got time, but in Genesis 1, verse 20, six, the Bible reads, and he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowls of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. We see here God giving man dominion. But in verse chapter 2 and in verse 19, it reads, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the earth and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Adam named Eve. Remember? Adam named every animal. That was a symbol of dominion. When your parents name you, by your grandparents sometimes, that is a symbol of dominion. Are you with me? It says in our text, hallow be thy name. No one named God. 
that is supreme. No one gave God a name. He says with Moses, I am that I am. No one gave God a name. You are hallowing the name of God because that name is the name above all name. Doesn't end there. I wish it did. Think about what we wear. Some of us wear brands. Tommy Hilfiger, Gucci, Loret Polo, Jack Willis, Babor. Different brands. Why do you wear the brand? Because you wear the brand on your clothes, on what you wear, whatever you wear, it symbolizes something. It symbolizes quality for what you wear, reliability for what you wear. That's the essence of that brand, there's a name. And anyone in that organization from the brand will do all they can to uphold the integrity of that brand. And when we are the sons and daughters of God, we are his own. And we, in the life we lead, hallowed his name because in the eyes of God, we are little Christ. Christ. Let me put it that way, if you allow me. We carry Christ around. And by the life we lead, we are hallowing not just God, we are hallowing his name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Sometimes we might not be saying thy kingdom come. We might be saying thy kingdom waits. Don't come yet, just wait. Because I want to do something on earth first of all that is very important than your kingdom. Thy kingdom come. When we go onto our knees, we are going with a sense of consciousness of God's timetable. When we go on our knees to pray, we sit to pray, we are praying and thinking of what your father's agenda, his business, his timeline. You know, if you lived in a war-torn country where the war is against you because you are a Christian, you would say thy kingdom come. I remember when I was in boarding school and it were bad days, trust me, bad days. You want to say that kingdom come. There are days I prayed for the rapture to happen, you know, I'm tired. When I was at school and I had some exams coming through, I felt, you know, like kingdom should come now. I'm really tired of this exam, they're getting too much in medical school. Let me just, kingdom come, let's just go home. But in all sincerity, in the midst of everything, there should be this settled disposition 
where you are looking forward to the rapture. The Bible says in John, 1 John, it says that those that have this hope himself in them prefer themselves even as they are pure. You see, as you look through all we've said to you where we are right now, we see the requirements of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, that takes faith, faith in Christ. Thy will, that name, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come is hope. We need hope. Faith is for the now. Hope is for the future. If you put a man in prison, one of the things they want to do when you put in isolation in prison is to obviously wreck your hope. And if your hope is gone, you are done. And if you look at your lives, our lives, we, we've lived by hope. Hope, I'll, I'll grow up, I'll achieve this, I'll grow up, I'll achieve that. By this stage in my life, I'll have done this. That hope kept you going. But if that hope was taken away, what do you have left? The hope in your children. The hope of whatever life calls hopeful. But I present to you a hope that supersedes our hope. The hope of God's kingdom. The hope of a thousand years of millennial reign on earth. A hope of a new heaven and a new earth. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Thy will be done. It's difficult to pray that prayer if you understand what you're saying. And that would affect your attitude in the place of prayer. It didn't say, my will be done. It didn't say, our will be done. It says, thy will be done. Sometimes, with our limited understanding, the will of God doesn't feel great. But we know that all things work together for good, for them that love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. And I pray that God, in his mercy, will help us to submit to the will of God. But what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Who will have all men to be saved and come to knowledge of his word? That's the will of God. That's why we share the gospel. And we pray in the place of prayer that God help me to be involved in your will as it relates to saving souls. Help him to share a track. Help him to share the gospel. That's the will of God. You are praying for strength in that area. What is the will of God? That we should pray for all those in authority, from the elders, the heads of the homes, 
the heads of the states, the first minister, the prime minister, that God will guide them, that will live a peaceable life in this world. That is the will of God. But beyond that, something more personal. In Philippians, let's go to Ephesians, sorry, I beg your pardon. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to read verse 17. The will of God transcends the material. And if you remember, we are on the vertical axis of our prayers, verse 1 and verse 2. Ephesians 1, I want to read verse 17. That God, and this is a prayer that Paul was praying for the church in Ephesus. It says that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us ward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's a prayer. What kind of prayer do we pray? The will of God. That concludes the vertical axis. The original axis of the prayer we want to pray is in verse 3 and verse 4. But if you notice, there's a soft transition from you or ye to us, to our. And that reminds us that as we pray, our prayer should go beyond ourselves. And I'll explain to you as we move along. Give us day by day our daily bread. Give us, not me. I want you get it. Give us day by day our daily bread. Interesting, isn't it? And I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that nobody here prayed for breakfast this morning. I'm very confident that nobody here prayed for breakfast this morning. You may have blessed your breakfast. But nobody here prayed. I could be very wrong. If I'm wrong, please, I apologize. But nobody here prayed to have breakfast this morning. And Christ, that knew everything from the beginning to the end, says, pray. Give us day by day our daily bread. But it was us, the church, on this side of eternity. That as we pray, we don't forget 
those who are not as privileged as we are. I won't say privileged, that's a wrong use of word, that's a wrong diction, not privileged. It's God's sovereignty. That we have believers like you and I, redeemed by the blood, that are truly praying for breakfast. Parents would take a stone, follow me please, they would take a stone, put it in a pot, pour, pour water, and put on the, the um, it's not what's what now, the cooker. And the kids would come and say, mommy, mommy, we're hungry. She would say, the food is still cooking. Four hours is still cooking. The kids will get tired. They will sleep. I woke up the next morning in an empty stomach. I believe you me, there are people that are redeemed by the blood of a lamb that are going through similar situations. So when we pray, now, first of all, we realize we have to pray. But when we pray, we're not consumed by our needs or the fact that we have no needs. But we are focusing on the church. That there is, I was somewhere, and the pastor said, let's pray for our fellow believers that are going through some problems right now. I didn't understand. But when I began to go through this verse, I understood what Christ was saying. When last did you say, God, we pray for the believers that have not what you've given to me? You're not better off. I'm not better off. We don't know what will happen in five years' time. That's Ukraine. We're not like a golden goose that may not be exposed. No. Let me give you some insights. My wife is telling me that time is going up. I am lost. <coughs> For what to do. But I think what I want to say is important. Do you know why? I'll explain. Over a month ago, Elder, I was calling Pastor Paul, Elder Paul sent me a text and said, I would like you to please, I'm sure he didn't say please, I'm sure he said please, I would like you to preach on a day. I chose a date, I was praying for guidance. I found myself in Luke 18, verse 1. As I was preparing, I was moved to Luke 11, where we are today. Two weeks after, I sat down somewhere where my son is sitting, and I realized that the teaching this afternoon was on prayer. And I panicked. And I said, if they're going to preach prayer in the afternoon, why am I preaching prayer in the morning? And I was encouraged. I felt God leading me this way. And I will tell you one thing. I've learned a lot personally that I ever learned in decades of being a Christian by this message. 
Where was I now? Let's have a quick agreement. Can you give me like 10 minutes more? Okay. Where was I? Give us day by day our daily bread. It didn't say give us day by day our weekly bread or monthly bread. Do you know why? Your son calls you every month because you send him stipends. And it's been to send him last few months. At the end of the month, he does what? He calls you again. If you're smart, you give me stipend every day. He calls you what? Every day. Dependence. God wants us to depend on him. But beyond that, God wants us not to be anxious about tomorrow. God wants us not to be worried about the future. To depend on him. The sparrows, the plants, they don't labor, they don't sow, but your heavenly Father takes care of them. It's real we have concerns beyond bread. And this applies to us that we should trust in the Lord for all our needs. Our needs that relate to our children, that relates to our health, that relates to our future, that relates to our past, that relate to things we cannot really improve on, to depend on him. Verse 4 and the last verse. And forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our sins. Even though we are saved, we can still fall into sin. But the emphasis here is that we acknowledge, we confess, and we receive forgiveness. But it says, forgive us our sins. I see here an intercessory tone to that word. Forgive us our sins. You remember Daniel praying, interceding? He puts him, he immersed himself into that prayer as if he also had sinned. It's beyond just saying it that way. It's you really understanding that we are one family. Unless you understand that we are one family, then that aspect doesn't really flow as it should. And obviously, we know that we would offend others. 
That's true. Even when you don't mean it, you would offend others. I might have offended you by something I said. I'm sorry. But then the point is this, someone can, will offend you. And you have to pray for grace to forgive. To forgive those that have offended you when they come or even when they are not able to come. The last thing I will emphasize before we pray is and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. The first thing you must bear in mind is that God is omniscient. He knows everything about you because he made you. He made me. He made us all. Us all. But also God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Even though God is sovereign and God is omniscient, God has given us an opportunity to participate in our life with him on this side of eternity. It says, and lead us not into temptation. We're told that would mean um, specifically trials, um, tribulations, among other things, but not specifically leading us to commit sin. I'll leave it at that. And that's the premise from which I take that section. If it's agree, we could obviously have a chat later on. It says, and lead us not into temptation. Why will I be telling God to lead me into test? That doesn't make sense. I wouldn't be praying to God to lead me into a test, into a trial. But wait for it. We can read James 1 verse 13. We can read 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 that talks about going allowed to be tempted, trialed, try beyond what you can, all we can overcome. But just follow me quickly. What is verse, this prayer point is bringing to our attention is this. You would not pray to be tested. You are praying not to be tested. But when you are tested, understand that God has your back. Understand that when you are tested, even though you are praying to God not to test you, when he decides out of his sovereign will to test you, he would see you through. We are drawing confidence that whatever comes my way in any shape or form, God knows. I do not know. I do not feel that I can overcome, but God knows. And when we come out of that trial, that test, 
will come forth prepared for a better walk. But deliver us from evil. I will just wrap that up and say that this world is an evil place. There are people that are Christians. I got sent a text message some, some years ago, and they showed me a young lady. She's probably going to be in her teens or early 20s. Um, she was in a community of people. Um, she's been beaten and beaten, um, <laughs> fell to the ground. Someone came around. People were all there around. They poured petrol or kerosene on her and lit her up. That's the world you live in. Don't get too comfortable on earth. That's the world you live in. That's the reality that our, our brothers and sisters are going through. Whatever we see here um, in the world that looks good is just by the mercy of God. It's just the goodness of God. And when we pray, God, deliver us from evil, it's a very important prayer. Let me conclude. He that fails to plan to pray has planned not to pray. He that fails so if I ask you to bring out your diary for tomorrow, is there a planned time to pray? Do you have a time you plan to pray every day? This is not a message for intellectual stimulation, no. This is practical. And your wife will see you if you change. Your husband will see you if you change. I'm not trying to coerce you into it, but I feel that God wants us to look inward and understand that he longs to fellowship with us, not just in gatherings, in corporate gatherings, but in personal, in our private. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the grace you've given to us to come together to hear your word. We simply ask that that which is of you would rest in our hearts and bring forth fruits for your glory. In Jesus' name. We've prayed. Amen.